Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 15.2, the second episode in our series on Saguaro National Park near Tucson, Arizona. In this episode, I speak with Cam Juarez, Community Engagement and Outreach Coordinator. Cam talks about what to see in the park and tips for visitors. We also want to hear about your adventures. Do you have a story to tell about your family's experience at a national park? A favorite recommendation to share? Or how this podcast helped enrich your trip? Email us at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Before I get to today's topic, I want to take a moment to talk about listener support. If you are already a patron of the podcast, thank you so much and feel free to skip ahead one minute to today's conversation. If you are not yet a patron and you want to hear my thoughts on this topic, here they are. This podcast is a labor of love. We were looking for a podcast that would help us in planning our family trips to national parks. We could not find one, and so we decided to create the podcast we were looking for. I ask you this question, has this podcast brought you value? If so, would you consider becoming a patron by offering financial support? Patreon is a platform that allows for recurring monthly support for as low as a dollar per month. You may find a link on everybody'snationalparks.com to support the show. Thank you for listening to this and for considering supporting Everybody's National Parks. Now let's get to the conversation. Hello and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. Today I have Cam Juarez with me from Saguaro National Park. He is the Community Engagement and Outreach Coordinator and also the Public Information Officer. Hi, Cam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, and greetings from Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) What is it like in Tucson, Arizona right now? You know, yesterday we had 96 degrees, and today we're at about 72, and it's windy. So our plants and our our animals are are pretty confused. They're not sure if winter's over and if spring started or if summer's around the corner, but the weather's been a, a little weird lately. So when we were at the park, we were there in February, and it was yeah. the day after a big snowstorm, and a lot of yep. the snow had melted, but there was still snow on the ground <laughs> while we were visiting, yeah. and that was pretty amazing to see. So if you could just give a brief introduction of what you do at the park and how long you've been at Suaro. Sure, sure. My position was created by the, the former superintendent, Darla Seidel's who is now superintendent of Rocky Mountain National Park up in Colorado. She was very interested in the, the, the whole notion of relevancy, diversity, and inclusion, which was a major theme of the National Park Service going into 2016, which was the centennial, the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. So she was um, incredibly interested in finding someone from the local community to help bridge the gap between uh, the national park here and, and the community itself. The visitation here at Saguaro tends to come from from outside of the community, and and, uh, most folks in the local community weren't visiting the park. A lot of the park neighbors were coming to the park regularly and using the amenities here, 
but we weren't seeing a whole lot of uh, connection to the urban community, which is Tucson, Arizona, a city of almost a million people. At the time, I was elected to the the local school board. I was very involved with a lot of educational um, initiatives, and I was recruited with the the hope of not only increasing diversity coming into the park, but also increasing diversity opportunities for some of our employees here at the parks, both of age and of uh, racial and ethnic background, socioeconomic, that kind of stuff. Her idea was that if more people saw folks that reflected that, that community, they would be more more willing to not only come to the park, but come to the park regularly and make it part of their national traditions. If you get more people to become aware of the park, then they fall in love with the park. And if, if they fall in love with the park, they want to protect the park. And so we went from, you know, a novelty field trip visit to stewardship. And that's um, that's been uh, our mission for the last four years. That's fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. And has it been successful? Yes, we have seen some pretty impressive numbers. The first year I was here, um, every year we report our stats, the number of people we make direct contact with, not just folks that, you know, just pass by the table, but actually uh, we interact with. And so we count those numbers. And the first number that we came with was about 8,600 interactions. And our, our interactions are defined as, you know, more than three minutes. And so we had about 8,600 uh, that, that first year. The second year, we recorded 36,000 interactions. And then in our third year, we tallied about 52,000 with visitors, both inside the park boundaries and out in the community. So we've steadily been increasing our interactions with the community folks. Just anecdotally, we've seen people become a little bit more diverse. The visitation has become more diverse. We have a lot more families of typically middle-class families of uh, Latino community members. Here in Tucson, our population breakdown is probably roughly around 46% Latino. We're about 45, 50 miles from the border. So we get some visitation from Mexico, but mostly it's families in Arizona that are visiting the park. Saguaros are incredibly popular in, in pop culture right now. Um, anywhere you go, you can find people wearing Saguaro socks, t-shirts or whatever. And and so that's, I think, had some element of effect on our park visitation. One of the guided hikes I did while I was there, the park ranger said, particularly in Germany, I guess, Westerns, American Western mm-hmm. films are very popular. And so you get a lot of German tourists coming to see the Saguaros. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's great. I think typically the question we get from our G- German visitors is, you know, has Clint Eastwood been in the park recently? You know, <laughs> they stop asking about John Wayne, but but they certainly ask for, for Clint every once in a while. <laughs> well, let's get to the park. What makes up the park and what is the difference between the eastern, is it Rincon? The Spanish word for it is Rincon or like like a little hideaway, a spot, if you will. So it's Rincon Mountain District. Okay, Eastern Rincon Mountain District and the Western Tucson Mountain District. So Tucson is surrounded, we're really in a valley. We have a national forest to the north of us. We have a national forest to the south of us. And on the west side, we have the two districts of Saguaro National Park. So we're surrounded by mountain ranges. Some of them get snow. A lot of them got snow this last winter. We are made up of about close to 100,000 acres. And I think we're the only park in the country that has two districts like that. But we are, more importantly, part of what we call the Sky Island ecosystem. The desert is all around us in Arizona, as as you can imagine, especially southern Arizona. But these mountain ranges just pop out of the desert into higher elevations, you know, six and seven and eight thousand feet, in some cases close to ten thousand and twelve thousand feet. 
these mountain ranges pop out of the desert and they end up looking like islands uh, when it's uh, when it's cloudy and the peaks are just peeking out. Uh, you can see it a lot when you fly into Tucson or fly out of Tucson. It's commonly known in the area here as the Sky Island Chain. The other reason that that's the case is because our flora and our fauna specifically will will migrate along those those islands. Of the 100,000 acres that we have for Sora National Park, something that's also very impressive that most people don't know is that 77% uh, of that is what we call um, wilderness area. So 77,000 acres, I think, plus are areas that are pristine, that are untouched, and that we go through great efforts to to not use any sort of mechanical machinery, um, not even not even chainsaws or anything like that to do any trail work. Everything is done by hand, and we carry everything as much as possible through our, our mule team. So we have our pack mules taking all of our stuff up the ranges. On the east side, uh, you might have seen this when, when you came, and we start off uh, on the desert floor, and we get all the way up into Ponderosa Pines at the highest uh, elevation of, of 8,600-plus feet. Yeah, and are there different ecosystems in between, or is it just the two, the desert and the Ponderosa Pine? Well, no. So, if I mean, the way we define it is if you were to, you know, back in the day, decide that you were going to hike from the Sonoran Desert or the Mexican, northern Mexican border and walk all the way up to the southern border of Canada, you would experience all the biodiversity from point A to point B. You know, we're probably one of the most biodiverse deserts uh, in the world. And we're also, a, a lot of that is attributed to the rain, but also to the variation in altitude. And so that's a big distinction between the east and the west. The west doesn't have Absolutely. the same biodiversity and elevation. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, the two districts are different in that the east side is a much larger park district. If we go to the east side, uh, we'll see, you know, the variation in the biodiversity. But on the west side, it's definitely lower elevation, but the concentration of saguaro forests are so dense, uh, in part due to the fact that the local governments here have a lot of protections around their ecosystems. And so they protect a lot of these spaces through uh, the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. So they have this layer that doesn't allow for any sort of development in a particular uh, area. Back in, you know, I think it was into the early 60s when President uh, Kennedy added the Tucson Mountain District. Uh, we went from becoming a monument in 61 to becoming a national park. So we're quickly approaching our anniversary here. But going back to the differences, on the east side, we have uh, brown bears, which most people wouldn't imagine bears in, in Arizona, specifically in our national park. On the west side, not so much. Uh, but the west side has a wider diversity of snakes, for example, and hummingbirds. And so we definitely have a, a diversity, not just in, in uh, elevation, but a, a diversity in our flora and our fauna at either park. Yeah. What is the strangest animal, an animal that I haven't heard of, <laughs> perhaps? I mean, I think my favorite strange animal, if you will, or, or animal that, that is rare to, to visitors from other parts of the world is the Gila monster. I think the Gila monster is something that is elusive, something that um, it takes a while. Even being at, at the park here for four years, it was in my almost at the end of my second year, almost approaching my third year, that I finally got to see a Gila monster, you know, alive and in, and in living color. It was Super interesting to see uh, this thing, you know, not only cross the road, but cross the road pretty quickly. And so they're an interesting animal in that they are poisonous. 
their bite is one of these kind of lockjaw type bites and they, they stay on your hand or whatever body part they choose to, to bite if you so happen to come into contact with them. They're smaller than, than one would imagine. And I think the name kind of throws people for a loop because they're, they're not monsters. They're, they're just lizards, right? And they, <laughs> they tend to be smaller. But like I said, they're, they're venomous because they use that venom to not only uh, protect themselves, but also to, to capture some of their food. And it's the only venomous lizard in the United States. I would say that, that they're probably my favorite, you know, oh my God, you know, this is, this is one of those things you have to absolutely experience. But there are these animals that not only live for, a, for quite some time, but they bury themselves in the desert sand for most of, the, of their life. They come out to mate, essentially, and then they take care of business and, and, and then they, they're gone. They're, they disappear for some time. The other animal that one would not imagine, I think, is the elf owl. We have quite a few owls, but I think the elf owl is probably the uh, most interesting of the owls to me because of their size. And they become a lot more prominent in the wintertime. And so a lot of our birds will, will go further south for the wintertime, but uh, the elf owl tends to, tends to stay in, in the area uh, during that time. And how likely is it for a visitor to see either one of those, the Gila monster or the elf owl? One of the parts of being a two-district park is being in close partnership with other entities. We have a, an internationally renowned desert museum called the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. And it's probably only about four miles away from our, our main entry into our West District. And so if you really want to kind of have a full-fledged experience, you go down the, down the road to the Sonoran Desert Museum. It's really not a museum. It's more like a zoo because they have quite a few of, of these species in captivity. So you're able to see some of these animals through some of the uh, interpretation programs that they have there. In the park itself, it really is just a matter of, of time. If you're in the park during the, the time that they're active, you're likely going to see some of these animals. A few months ago, probably about close to a year ago, we had some of the gentlemen from uh, the public uh, broadcasting system, from PBS, from one of the kids' shows, Krat Brothers. Wildcrats. My kids love that show. <laughs> oh, my God. My little boy's all about it. So they were here, and we spent uh, two days with them. And on the first day that we spent with them, we uh, had the camera folks with us. And, and it, it's a really low footprint. It's a very small team of the production team. And we were not able to find any of the animals that we were looking for, including the Gila monster, on that first day. It wasn't until the second day that we were able to find the, the Gila monster and some of the other birds that we were looking for. They were looking for some, some birds of prey, and they were looking for the, the black-tailed uh, rabbit. So we were able to find some of those creatures on the second day. But it was in the middle, of, almost in the middle of summer, and we were out at probably 4.30 in the morning. And we were not able to find any of these creatures because these creatures, you know, they, they love that early morning light. But after that, they tend to shade. It's important to recognize that if you are going to look at these animals, they're going to find you. You're not necessarily going to find them. Oh, and the Gila monster, if you encounter mm -hmm. it, is there any danger precaution or if you just keep your distance, it'll stay away from you? I mean, like most wildlife, they're, they're not coming to get you. They're, they're definitely going to try to get away from you as quickly and as safely as possible. The unfortunate thing is that you have uh, park visitors that aren't always uh, respectful of them. And so you have folks that are pursuing visitors with their camera phone 
at close proximity. And, and so that's when we usually have some of those negative interactions, you know, where we've had to educate folks, hey, please don't chase the rattlesnake. Let it be, you know, please don't pick up the Gila monster, situations like that. But for the most part, they, they will make every effort to, to uh, move on. We talked about fauna, talking about flora. Is there anything that in particular that you like with regard to flora? Besides the saguaro, of course, and if that's your answer, right, your right. favorite. Saguaro is probably my, my favorite. Yeah. I would say that, you know, we have a really large, uh, expansive list of, uh, of uh, choya here at the park. Choya is really interesting because it's a, it's a segmented plant. The design of the plant itself is uh, to propagate uh, the plant. The segments are designed to break off if anything or any one comes in within close proximity. So there's this theory among some folks here uh it's really, it's, it's folklore that we have the jumping choy is what we call it, and, and that it jumps on you as you're walking by. But really, the segments are so delicate that as you're walking by, if you even touch one of the spines, it'll break off and it'll end up in your socks or your pants or your dog's mouth or whatever the case is. That uh, is how it propagates. When people think of the desert, they think of like, oh, there's nothing, nothing to see here. You know, people are accustomed to forests, you know, pine tree forests and that kind of thing. But our deserts are so full of life, whether it's the ocotillo or whether it's uh, the choya or whether it's the prickly pear cactus. If I had to go with favorites, I'm going to go with the saguaro every time. So what makes the uh, saguaro special? It's really the only place in the United States, in some cases in the world, that it grows the way it does here. So the saguaro is, is this enormous plant. The highest that we've been able to find, I think, is the neighborhood of around 70 feet. And to be able to be that tall and that old and that heavy, because these things can weigh up to two tons, uh, especially when they're, when they're full of water, and to stay standing, it's a feat of disproportionate belief, I think. And we get some windstorms out here and we get some rainstorms. Um, and of course, we have saguaro that fall. But if you've ever interacted with cacti, you know that they can be very delicate, especially at some of the segments. And so the saguaro has this amazing root system that goes out as far as it is tall. So you got root systems that are going out, you know, upwards of 70 feet. And they really are only about six inches below the, the topsoil. So really the, the thing that keeps it uh, together is a root that goes directly into the ground about six feet. Uh, and it's called a taproot. And that taproot is its anchor. Uh, the root system is really there to collect water as quickly as the water falls upon the surface here during some of our monsoon seasons or, or some of our torrential rains, the water needs to be quickly absorbed by the saguaro that can hold up to, you know, 100 gallons in a small storm to upwards of 500 gallons uh, in a large storm. And it holds that water in a gelatinous form inside of the flesh of the saguaro. So it's this amazing thing that not only serves as, as a landscape, uh, but the plant itself doesn't have leaves, as you can imagine. And of course, trees need leaves to process the chlorophyll. And so the saguaro skin itself is what processes the, the chlorophyll. And in terms of shade that the leaves provide for a tree, the spines that grow in a saguaro not only help to protect it from animals and, and from human beings, but it also uh, provides a layer of shade around the entire saguaro plant itself. So it's just this miraculous plant that has so many different elements there to keep it alive for as long as they are. The the thing that really keeps the thing sitting up straight, if you will, is its rib system. It's a, it's like a, a wooden 
rib system that uh, holds the plant together. It's thicker in the center of the saguaro, but then the arms also grow these wooden-like ribs that keep everything in, in place. Imagine almost using wire inside of a stuffed animal to keep the stuffed animal straight. But the saguaro, once it dies, doesn't cease to be useful to the flora and the fauna and also to the local communities. During uh, the lifetime of the saguaro, once it gets to a certain height, certain birds and even certain creatures will, will use the saguaro as, uh, as a hotel, if you will. And, and we call it that because so many different types of animals use it while it's alive, but also after it's, it's fallen. I'll give you a couple examples. We have uh, the cactus wren, we have the elf owl, which I mentioned earlier. Woodpecker really is the first bird that, that interacts with, with the saguaro. The woodpecker will poke a hole into the saguaro to uh, use that space to avoid predators. And so that's typically where it'll lay some eggs inside of the, the hole that it pokes. Thereafter, you know, any number of creatures will take over the home once the previous tenant vacates the, the premises. So uh, you'll have a, a woodpecker there one month, and then the next month you might have uh, an owl in there or, or a cactus friend using that space for, for safety, but also for protection from the sun. Uh, and because they're up higher, it protects them from, from other predators that are on the ground, uh, like snakes or, or even Gila monsters. After the, the saguaro has fallen, the saguaro uh, flesh will start to, to rot away, and it'll leave behind two really important things. One of them I mentioned already is the saguaro ribs, which are used by some of the local tribes and even some of the local non-native community members, including folks dating back to Spanish and, and Mexican settlers in, in the area. They will use the ribs as uh, roofing material or to provide shade. The Tohono O'odham also use the ribs as part of their, their ceremony. But um, the other thing that's left behind is what we call saguaro boots. Imagine for a moment that you cut yourself and that you've got some blood coming out. Uh, and of course, what happens after you, you bleed and you, you know, you've treated it with some antiseptic or whatever, there's a, a scab that forms um, around the area where, where you have the wound to keep your blood from coming out, but also to keep infections from going in. And so the scab uh, on your skin forms on the outside of your skin. With saguaros, because of all that water and the gelatinous uh, stuff that's inside the saguaro, that stuff can leak out. If a woodpecker, for example, pokes a hole in there, the saguaro will immediately form a scab, but on the inside of the saguaro. And it becomes a hardened skin. Uh, when the saguaro falls um, and the flesh falls away and the, and the, the ribs you know, start kind of coming apart, we will likely find a, what we call the, the saguaro boot. And it, it, it almost looks like a boot and it feels like a, like a dry gourd that has been used uh, by, by tribes and other people to you know, use as a container, but also to carry water. It's also used in ceremony sometimes with, with uh, some of the tribes, but we use it as an educational tool. We'll, we'll take the, the saguaro boot out to, to events and show it to kids. Tarantulas also tend to use it as, as an apartment, uh, a condo or a, or a bed and breakfast or, or even uh, an Airbnb, if you will. And so different creatures will use that. Scorpions, other types of spiders will use it. Centipedes will use it. The use of the saguaro goes on for hundreds of years if uh, used appropriately. Another thing that I would say is saguaros will put out about a million seeds over their lifetime. And those seeds come from the flowers, uh, but more importantly, from, from the, the saguaro fruit. We call saguaros trees uh, because they act just like trees. They, got, they process chlorophyll. They produce flowers. They produce uh, trees. They serve for our 
bees and our birds that are part of our biosystems here that we we have um, these uh, pollinators that, that, that are using uh, the, the saguaros. So birds, bees, bats, I mean, those three bees will pollinate these flowers and eventually produce the fruit that is part of uh, the ceremonial components of, of the Tohono Autumn. And it's a sweet uh, berry that uh, the Tohono Autumn use for ceremonial wine. It's uh, really high in protein, so it's, it's an important part of their diet. Some of this stuff is even used to produce um, a particular kind of flour that they use to make a special bread. They also uh, will make candy. But this stuff is produced in the summer. The Saguaro Fruit Harvest Camp recently uh, we, we lost a woman who traditionally had been maintaining these, these traditions and these camps uh, as part of a special use permit that, that uh, the tribe takes out with the National Park Service. Stella Tucker was, was a woman that uh, had been carrying on with this tradition for close to 40 years. Her daughter, uh, Tanisha Tucker, recently has taken over that permit and that tradition. And they primarily hold these traditions for the Tohono the people, but Stella and Tanisha have both been very open to inviting the public to understand how the harvest or the biodage, as they call it, has become very popular here in Tucson to talk about uh, during the summer. We lost, uh, like I said, Stella during the shutdown. So recently we had a, an opportunity to, to invite a lot of members from the Tohono Autumn community, specifically her family, to come to the park uh, to honor her and to provide her with uh, an arrowhead, which is uh, what we provide employees of the National Park Service. But there's a special arrowhead that we provide uh, to civilians uh, to, to honor them for the work that they've done for the National Park Service and specifically for our park. So we're, we're happy to be in that partnership with them because it, it's that close connection to First Nation peoples, but also to honor traditions that are, you know, millennia old. What a wonderful partnership and collaboration. That just sounds amazing. I wanted to ask you about the water because I did see so much water only on the east side, I saw waterfalls and I saw streams, but I also saw wash from yep. the, you know, the snow melt. And so I wanted to just um, get a quick idea of how much water is there on a regular basis. That yeah. waterfall, for example, that I saw on the hike I did, which was the Garwood Loop, starting mm-hmm. at Douglas Spring Trailhead. Will you see that waterfall at any time of year? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we have a, a lot of perennial water sources. We have a couple things. We're definitely going to have more water on the east side uh, as a result of the higher elevation uh, mountain range that we have out here. We're really barely a desert here uh, in, in, in this part of the Sonoran Desert. Um, and we're one of the wettest deserts uh, in the world. And so a lot of that is because we are uh, a bimodal desert. We, we get rain in the summer as well as in the winter. Um, in the winter, of course, we get the rain, but we also get the snow, as, as you experienced. We have some naturally occurring uh, springs that we call uh, tinajas. So it's spelled T-I-N-A-J-A-S, tinajas. And, and so uh, these tinajas are these naturally occurring water sources that come from the ground up, uh, and they fill these, these springs that really um, are, are solid rock. And these rocks, you know, have, have been molded through many years of of rain coming through them or water, you know, coming out of the ground to the top of it. But I mean, it's the reason why we have the biodiversity in our plants that we do, you know, from we, we, we might have ocotillo, prickly pear and choyas and all that stuff we talked about, but we also have palo verde trees and mesquite and ironwood trees. We have 
clear soil and you know we have grasslands that transition into these these ponderosa pine forests as we go north. So all of this is collecting water uh, on the east side. On the west side, you know, we don't have as much of that. So we'll see more of the manzanita and, and the juniper and that kind of stuff that doesn't require as much water. But if we were to, to think about uh, these perennial water sources as, you know, being on one side or the other, we also have to be cognizant that we have this bimodal desert that I mentioned earlier. And during the monsoon season, uh, which is typically between, you know, June and, and July for a start time, we're seeing that move a little bit further down the road. And, and it, it used to happen almost on the dot in, in early June. And now it's happening more in July. It tends to go a little later as well. But this last year, we had so much rain. Uh, that is probably the reason why we had the snowfall that we did. That water uh, will stay below the surface in most of our washes. But if you dig in any of our washes, you dig about a foot in and you'll start seeing the wetter soil. Uh, I'm sure if you dug down far enough, you could probably uh, find uh, water collecting. Um, I know folks that have lived here in Tucson all their life that that say they used to be able to go in the desert, dig a hole about six inches deep at the beginning of the day, and then in the afternoon, the water uh, would would uh, come to the surface of that hole. Hmm. Um, so there's water present, but most of it is, is just below the surface. And so we have plenty of washes that during the summer will flood almost instantaneously because there's already uh, saturation below the surface. The sun just keeps the, the top layer nice and dry. I see. Well, that's fascinating. I did not know that before I went, so that was uh, really interesting to see, just water, water everywhere. (laughs) So let's get to some tips for visitors. How much time do you suggest, ideally, for a family visiting the park? Well, you know, it depends on what you're looking to do. I mean, we're not a recreational area, so we're we're not kind of being all day kind of thing. But we, we have over, you know, close to 200 miles of trail that you can hike we have loops that you can bike. We don't encourage dogs on our trails because of the wildlife here. Um, the javelina tend to see uh, dogs as, as predators because of their, their bad vision. And so they tend to attack not just the animal, but they'll tend to attack the, the people that might be tied to the animal through, through a leash. For example, you've heard a lot about the super blooms that are happening all over California. Yes. They're happening here in Tucson as well. I mean, in Arizona... Um, the super blooms have been happening everywhere. So if it's a matter of wanting to get that selfie, we might get somebody to just drive here, take the selfie, maybe drive the loop. Um, and that, you know, depends on if you're taking a longer version of that loop, it can mm-hmm. be up to eight miles. Uh, or you can take a shorter, quick drive, and that might take, you know, maybe half an hour. You could be here for, for 10 minutes. You could be here for an hour. You could be here for five or six hours. We have noticed that different visitors uh, recreate differently. And so traditional park goers will typically show up with water, with a picnic. In some cases, uh, they use one of our picnic areas, they take a quick hike, and then they're, they're, they're gone. You know, we have some grills that we can use uh, when we're not in, in uh, high fire season. And so people will, will bring some chicken, some carne asada, if you will, and, and they'll be here for, for hours. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, some of those folks tend to, they might be their first visit. So they might go for a couple hikes. They might drive from one park to the other, like you guys, for example. Right. We, we, highly, we highly encourage folks in the summer to come into the park before we open and leave by 9 a.m. You know, have finished our hikes by 9 a.m. And typically we encourage them to come to our visitor centers at, at that point. So the fall, as the temperatures start falling in late fall, 
um, that's when we're going to see our visitation shoot up again. So I would say in terms of, of tips, winter is amazing. If you want to do some backcountry camping, winters here are mild enough that if you have a nice 20 degree sleeping bag, you're, you're, you're going to be great. Springtime, I mean, as you're getting into March, uh, I think our busy season is uh, probably November through uh, early April. Okay. And that's when you're going to see uh, the park be the busiest. In fact, recently we put out a press release saying, look, we don't have a whole lot of, of uh, parking spots. You know, if you want to come see the park, you know, uh, the, the, the high time for visitation is going to be between 9 a.m. and noon. After that, that's when you see a fall in, in the visitation. And so if you're local or if you, if you have the opportunity to come a little later in the day, we highly encourage it. Maybe, maybe come for sunset. Summer is, if you really want to visit the park, sunrises here in the summer are incredible. Um, we're, we're making more of an effort to provide uh, more water stations. Water is, is incredibly important during the summer here. Your pH balance is different than what it is here in, in, the, in the desert. Mm-hmm. So your body is already losing some of that, that hydration. And so if you're, if you're thirsty, you know, while you're on a hike, you're already pretty dehydrated. So, you know, we have this motto here that we use with folks is, you know, if you do have water with you, if you're halfway down, turn around. Um, you don't want to die because you didn't have enough water. And that's typically our search and rescue missions is, is looking for folks that didn't have enough water. Mm-hmm. We'll see visitors show up here with the plastic water bottle, you know, a tiny, you know, half liter bottle. And, and even in some cases, some of those smaller individual, you know, six ounce, eight ounce bottles. And we're like, that's nowhere near enough uh, water for you. It's definitely one of those things that we, we watch out for. So really early fall, summer, you kind of want to stay away from, from midday hikes or very lengthy hikes. But really, uh, spring and, and winter or, or, or even uh, early fall are, are perfect times for, for hikes. So I would say, you know, just be prepared to have, you know, some sun protection, some water, and you're good to go year-round. I mean, that, that rule applies just year-round. And what is there any sort of rule of thumb for how much water to bring with you? You know, it, it really all depends on the person. It depends on where you're from. If, if you're from the Southwest, um, you're going to be a better off than someone, say, from Minnesota, right. uh, where your skin is going to be a lot more plump with hydration. This is the biggest challenge because the longer the hike, the more water you need to carry. Because mm-hmm. once you're past that point, there are no water opportunities. And so you've got to carry as much water for yourself as possible. So um, try to carry at least a, a gallon per person per hour on a hike. If you're taking a half hour hike, stick to a half hour and maybe carry, uh, you know, a liter or two of water with you. I would say if you can carry more, uh, the more you can carry, the better. Right. Um, but certainly hydrate before you start the hike. Uh, most people say, I don't want to drink a lot of water before I start my hike because you don't have any restrooms out there. Well, you know, it's nature. We, we prefer that you, you go out there and, you know, if you have to, then, then not have enough water if you're going to go on a longer hike or if your hike comes longer because you missed the you know, a turn on the trail and you ended up somewhere you, you didn't want to be. Uh, but I would say that most of our rescues are related to, to a lack of water. Right. We always end our conversations with a question to all of our guests. And that is, can you share a special moment, a special experience, anything that's happened to you in the park where you took a moment and thought this place is really special? You know, um, prior to, to joining the Park Service four years ago, I was always an outdoorsy person, and there's so much to do here in, in Tucson as it relates to hiking and trail biking and stuff like that. 
there's just a lot to do. And we, we have, we're very fortunate to have the weather that we have here. Interestingly enough, prior to becoming a park ranger here at Saguaro, I had never been to the park, nor was I as familiar with everything that I am familiar with now. So every time I go on a hike, there's something special. We have petroglyphs that are, you know, thousands of years old. And, and we have uh, pictograms in some spaces that we don't often share with the public because, you know, we're afraid that people are going to damage them and, and that kind of thing. But they're out there. And, and if you go on a hike, you're always going to find something. And every time I go out uh, with any of our, our ancestral rangers and some of these young people that are typically younger than I am and are sharing part of their culture with me, it's always an incredible experience. And we talk about music or food or smells that take us back to a particular happy moment in our life or a memorable moment. It might be a hike that you took uh, in honor of uh, a parent or a sibling or, or a family member that passed away. A lot of that happens here at the park. And so there's different things to connect you to that. So I would say becoming familiar with some of the plants here that smell of rain, you know, when you, you, you exhale some breath, on them and you realize that the moisture activates that smell. And it's that smell of rain in the desert that is just so incredibly difficult to describe unless you've experienced it. So I would say in closing, I would invite folks to, to make it a point to try to get out here to experience this. The Sonoran Desert is, is changing. It's rapidly changing. The climate is changing. And I think it's important for people to experience these things before they change to a point that we'll never be able to get back to. When I first visited Glacier National Park and, and, and saw Grenier Glacier, it was this thing that, as I understand, is, is, is no longer the same experience that I had when I first went. And it's the same thing here in the desert. Just because it's the desert doesn't mean it's always going to be the same. And so I invite folks to come see this space because we're so different than the rest of the country during the winter. It's so mild and, and so beautiful here, and it's such a great experience to see our desert skies, our painted skies, if you will. It's one of these things that when people get here from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, they say, oh my God, this is beautiful. I've never seen it. And even people here in town sometimes will take it for granted until they're actually in the park. And so when they see that and they experience that, it becomes memorable and it becomes something you want to protect. And so that's what we're looking to do is we're looking to, to have it be enjoyable to people, but also we want people to become stewards of these beautiful spaces. Thank you so much. What a great note to end on. Cam Juarez, Community Engagement and Outreach Coordinator at Suaro National Park. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybodysnationalparks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. 
Bye for now.